0: Very good. So thank you everybody for waiting for a few minutes. It's uh, 2 or 3 minutes past uh, 3 o'clock. I was in the committee meeting. These are the great volunteers who helped make this uh, monastery run, keep it going. Uh, this uh, many, many parts of our Buddhist society now and I mentioned to them that even though I've been working hard at a committee meeting and other things beforehand, you do feel a little tired, but as soon as you get to teaching Dhamma, it's amazing, every time, it's kind of you wake up, you get clear mind. And as somebody said, I think you said this, it's because it's coming from your mind, from your heart, rather than from your brain. So you actually have a committee meeting, you have to think. Here you have to feel, different part of the mind is being used. So anyway, let's begin. Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato sama sambhudasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alohato samma sambuddhasa buddhang damang sangang namasami And I know that I'm going to wake up and be very clear minded very soon because we're just finishing off, I think we're just finishing off, that's what's on my page over here, the seven enlightenment factors and then we go into of course one of my favourites, the jhanas. So let's start first of all, this is summing up how Anapanasati fulfills, uh, completes the the, uh, four factors or the four focuses of mindfulness, how the four focuses of mindfulness uh, fulfill the seven enlightenment factors and the seven enlightenment factors, they produce full enlightenment. Here you develop mindfulness enlightenment factor which is supported by seclusion, physical and mental. The physical means that you do uh, have a place of quiet and peace where you can practice these things. The mental seclusion does imply the deep meditations where the mind is like kind of separated, aloof from the other five senses, Uh, supported by fading away, when many things you always believed were permanent start to disappear and then they actually do disappear, cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. When you know that these things are not permanent, they're not always going to be there, they're subject to cessation. The idea of owning them, you can't own things which are, You can't own things which are out of your control. And soon you see that all these things are totally out of your control. Your body, past past and future, uh, thoughts, perceptions, feelings. I'd always love to have pleasant feelings for the rest of my existence. Only joy and happiness, never any suffering. But I can't do that. Not even the Buddha could do that. This morning when I gave some chanting to someone uh, who was experiencing a lot of suffering, I chanted for them the uh, Bojanga Sutta. And one of those uh, chants was that even the Buddha, when he was suffering, uh, the monk Chunda, who was attendant at the time, chanted a Bojanga Sutta for him. And the Bojanga is the seven enlightenment factors. And by hearing that chanting, it was so inspiring to the Buddha that the Buddha recovered immediately. Even the Buddha got sick. You develop the exploration of Dhamma. The energy, the joy, tranquility, stillness, equanimity, stroke, contentment, enlightenment factor which is supported by seclusion. Fading away, cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. You don't own anything anymore. Nothing. There's not even an owner uh, visible. And that is how the seven enlightenment factors developed and cultivated complete true knowledge and deliverance. In other words, full enlightenment. I'm not sure if I said that two weeks ago, did I? I may have had to leave because I was over time. But anyway. Now we go to what I was looking forward to talking about today, right stillness. In Pali that's Samma Samadhi. And of course you all know that Samadhi is often, it's got many, many different translations, usually translated as absorption or concentration but I have never found a better translation than stillness. It describes what it feels like and it makes it quite clear what is the path into that stillness. Doing things never creates stillness. Holding things, striving for things will never allow that stillness to develop. it always be stiff. And remember, these states will last for long periods of time. And they can't possibly last for such periods of time when there's too much uh, control happening. This is where all control actually vanishes. Anyway, this is the first quote on right stillness, otherwise known as jhana. I remembered a time, this is the Buddha talking, I remembered a time when my father was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. At this particular time they estimated the Buddha was maybe six, maybe seven years of age, not really called the Buddha yet, but a young boy. Having passed beyond the five senses and free from unwholesome states, I entered and abided in the first jhana. That's what the Buddha remembered as a kid. And sometimes you may think, wow, that's amazing, someone so young can actually enter a jhana like that. But in the years I've been teaching these jhanas, I've come across many people, old, young, even people who weren't even Buddhists, who sometimes do some kind of letting go and spontaneously just enter into these jhanas, and I check them out and ask the questions and it's true. They did have experience of that jhana. And as for this person who is soon to be the Buddha, I thought, could that be the path to enlightenment? I'll repeat that because it's important, the Buddha thought, this jhana, could that be the path to enlightenment, to Bodhi? then a realisation arose that jhana is indeed the path to enlightenment. And there was a fantastic statement there, uh, which the Buddha said in the Majjhima Nikaya. The Eightfold Path is the real, accurate description of the path to enlightenment. But that Eightfold Path culminates in the eighth factor. There is a sequential uh, part to this Eightfold Path. One leads to the other, which leads to the other, which leads to the other. And even the development of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, that leads to the jhanas and the jhanas lead to full enlightenment. This is what the Buddha's insight was. Could that be the path to enlightenment? Then the realization arose that jhana is indeed the path to enlightenment. And the Buddha realized that, not when he was sitting under the rose apple tree. That memory stayed with him for many years. This was after the Buddha had tried so many other different ways to enlightenment, now, through many of those were ascetic practices. I didn't put down here, but I do remember so clearly, what the Buddha said next, or the Buddha-to-be said next. He was fasting, he was very thin, he was very um, weak with all the exertions, especially with the fasting. And so he started to next day. it is difficult to experience those jhanas with a body so weak and emaciated. So suppose that I start resting, washing, eating properly, and then with a fit body, then maybe those jhanas might become more easy to attain. And so he did start looking after his body much more than he'd done before. And that's when his five first disciples, that's when they left him. They thought the Buddha was given up all striving. He's not practicing just this strict fasting or asceticism like he used to. He's going soft. He's given up the path, so they abandoned him. But of course, we know what actually happened. He did find this beautiful way to enter these jhanas again, and that led to the full enlightenment. But anyway, This is why when the Buddha did become enlightened, the first thing which he taught was the middle way, between asceticism and indulgence. But I'm going off track here. So that jhana is indeed the path to enlightenment. The four jhanas, what actually are they? One. And you can see the quotes here, you can check it out for yourself. Having abandoned the five hindrances, abandoned them, not just restrain them or weaken them, abandon them, totally free from the five senses, totally free. So you can't hear anything. Obviously you've got your eyes closed, but even if you opened them you wouldn't see anything. Remember what I said I think yesterday. Uh, oh yesterday, that sometimes when you open your eyes and do this Zen meditation, if you're peaceful enough, if what you see is not changing, like I was staring at a whitewashed wall, after a while, just the wall vanishes. The eyes are open, but the sense of sight turns off, simply because nothing is happening. So in these jhanas you are totally free from the five senses. You cannot see anything, you cannot hear anything, you cannot um, smell, taste, or even physical touch has disappeared. So if somebody taps you on the shoulder and said, No, know, the car is waiting to take you to Bodhinyana, you would not feel the tap on your shoulder. You're not ignoring it, it just doesn't register in your mind. You're totally free from the five senses, free from unwholesome states, the hindrances, then you enter upon and abide in the first jhana. Now, the first jhana has these five states, and those five states. It's great to have a good translation of what these are, because people feel all sorts of crazy ideas of what these first five, these five states, which are uh, remaining when you get into the first jhana. The, they call it first of all, Vitaka Vichara. And I don't know how people can actually say and maintain this position, that it means that it's uh, thinking and reflecting on what you're thinking on. It's absolutely just, to me it's actually quite strange that people feel that in a deep meditation that your mind can think, conceptualise, verbalise, find inferences. The mind is way too still to do that. You've gone beyond thoughts and names and connection between names. You're having raw experience knowing without giving anything a name. That's where the Vitaka Vichara in its normal state has disappeared but instead the mind is not perfectly still. You have this beautiful bliss which is the object you're aware of and the mind holds on to that bliss. The letting go has not been perfected yet and that holding on to that bliss is called vichara and because you're holding on to it, it's not exploring it, It's this last little bit of attachment. Because of that, the uh, stillness is unstable, you move away from it. And as you move away from it, this is a metaphor, the bliss is so strong it pulls you straight back in. That's the wittaka. I sometimes call it the non-verbal movement of the mind and holding on to that mind. Just to make it more easy to understand, I coined the metaphor like the wobble. Not perfectly still, but you know, almost 100%. And the reason why you're not perfectly still is that when you're on that bliss, you just hold it a bit too hard. Still haven't properly let go yet, but still you're blissing out. You don't lose that object of awareness, the bliss. And you have the joy and pleasure, I love those words, these are incredibly powerful. These are the biggest blisses and joys and pleasures you've ever felt in your life. Bliss and pleasure, joy and pleasure caused by being totally free from the five senses. It's like because your five senses is taking up zero energy from your mind, all that energy just stays in the mind and it creates this great sense of energy and bliss. In the first jhana, five things are absent and five factors are present. When one has entered the first jhana, the five hindrances are totally absent. And what is present, the mind moves onto the object, holds onto it, the object being joy and pleasure, and there is a oneness of mind. This they call a kagata. The oneness of mind does not mean like one pointedness of mind. That's just to, um, to lower a description. The word aga, ekagata, aga, you may remember from its Sanskrit form, agra. That was the capital of the Mughal Empire in India. It means the peak, the summit. So instead of saying one pointedness of mind or oneness of mind, sometimes we prefer saying like one summit of mind, a huge peak of experience, immense mindfulness, immense joy and pleasure. But the only obstacle there is the mind moving slightly the wobble. I will do the next two and then we can go for questions. When the mind no longer moves onto the object, you're going from the first jhana to the second jhana, when the mind no longer moves onto the object because it lets go of holding onto it, you can relax enough just to let this bliss be then you enter upon and abide in the second jhana, which has trust in the object. Sometimes you translate that same word, it's sampasadhana, it's like uh, faith in the object. This means that you can let go of that last bit with that trust, faith, confidence. And uh, that means you can let go of it, it's not going anywhere. The holding onto it is proving to you that that is a disturbance. This doesn't need to be done. And then, when it doesn't move, you have unity of mind without any movement of, or holding onto it. And this is with a different flavor of piti sukha. This is a joy and pleasure caused by absolute stillness. Nothing moves here. This is sometimes described in other traditions, it's a valid description, as like diamond-like samadhi. It's You could say it's hard, yes, that's one way of looking at it, but it's also like solid, immovable, beautiful. Now, there is also a one and a half jhana as well, which the Buddha mentioned. This is where you'd no longer, uh, you're still holding on to the bliss, but not strong enough to move the attention away from the bliss. The wobble goes. There's no like Vitaka moving back on to the object of meditation, the bliss, because you've had, no getting rid of the impatience. It's a stage between the first and second jhana the witaka has gone, but Vichara is still there, He's still holding, but very, very lightly. And it's not that far from that one and a half jhana to the second jhana, which is why most times it counts as a second jhana. It's very difficult to see the difference between that one and a half jhana and the full second jhana. And you know the taste of the second jhana, it's a metaphor again, the taste, what distinguishes it, different type of bliss and happiness, like a different flavor of ice cream. This is more delicious than anything you've had before, much more profound than the first jhana. This is where the mind really does become totally still. First jhana is because of the absence of the five senses. Second jhana is because the absence of any movement in the mind. The mind now is really totally profoundly still. People sometimes ask, if it's that still, how can you ever remember anything? To remember anyth- anything, you know what happens if you're in a university, you've got to remember the notes which would be, remember the, the points which the teacher is presenting to you. you, take down notes. That's how we're trained to remember things. In the jhanas you cannot take down notes. It's impossible, the mind is too still. But, with the increase in mindfulness and the joy, the power which is in your mind, whatever you experience, you can recall so easily. It's something you can't get out of your mind. I often, you know, try and find words for this. The closest words, it traumatizes you, but not in a negative way. In a trauma you can remember everything. Sometimes you remember it at night time when you're trying to go to sleep, you remember it during the day, you try to get rid of that trauma because that's negative. These are things which are so incredibly positive. So whenever you want to turn your mind to that, that was an amazing experience, what was it? It will come up straight away. That's how powerful it is. And it's when you recall it, for those of you who want to check this out, It's called uh, (laughs) what is it? Pachawakana, yana, reflecting back on these powerful experiences, and that is where you get the data, to get the deep insights. You've had this powerful information. It's absolutely true. You've got no doubt about that. The five hindrances, especially the one about doubt, has gone, vanished. What you see, you can rely upon as truth. When you reflect back upon it, that's where you can make the connections, especially the connections with other dhammas which you have heard and understand what things like anicca or dukkha or anatta really are, what they really mean. So, the third jhana. With the fading away of... Okay, yeah, I didn't go totally into it which has trust in the object, the bliss, enough to let go of holding it and unity of mind without any movement or holding, with joy and pleasure caused by absolute stillness. This is the peak of stillness. With the fading away of joy, you abide mindful and fully aware, mindful, fully aware, experiencing a bliss purified from joy. Another different flavour. Purified and you enter upon abiding in the third jhana, account, on account of which noble ones announce one has a pleasant abiding indeed who has such mindfulness and equanimity. We're talking here about the third jhana. This is the experience which people have when you get into a first jhana, you think, wow, this is amazing. There can't be anything more delightful or profound than this. But then what happens? You know, you get into a second Chana, and that's even more profound and beautiful and pleasurable. It's like when you climb a mountain and you think this is the highest mountain in the world, and you find there's another mountain behind that, even higher. And then you go on another mountain which is higher. And there are basically four mountains first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. The Arupa states is moving from the fourth jhana to really lofty places which don't count as mountains anymore. This is when your mindfulness starts to fade away, beautifully, with the mind going too. Anyway the fourth jhana, I'm going ahead of myself, having abandoned pleasure and pain. That's all experience from the five senses, everything to do with the five senses and the pleasures and pains of all these things disappearing. And with the disappearance of joy and unhappiness, all Vedana from the sixth sense, except for equanimity, otherwise known as contentment, just looking on, peaceful. And after a while, it's confirmed by the Buddha, after a while that peace and equanimity is not boring at all, it's intensely mindful. It's another type of pleasure. You enter upon the abide in the fourth jhana, which has only neutral mental vedana remaining, just pure mindfulness with contentment. And I'd like to emphasize this, pure mindfulness. You don't lose mindfulness as you practice these jhanas. You purify them from other things, so the mindfulness which you experience is the purest and strongest mindfulness you can ever experience. That's what really makes it sort of out of this world, pretty much it is. That's the description. Now, questions? Yes, over there,
1: yeah. I'm
0: um,
1: curious how. Well, with your experience of how, if you've gone through all four of these, or how long it took to get there?
0: Okay, now that's a question I cannot answer. I'm just saying how frustrating it is. If I tell a lie, I have lost my monastic status. If I tell the truth, I'm still breaking the precepts. Mm. The Buddha said you can only tell other monks. And if I did, you know, claim that yes, I've experienced those, then it would be encouraging other monks. Actually, to talk about those, and sometimes those other monks will be put into a corner, pressurized, and then they'll may make a mistake and say they have. Mm. So, what I do, I have all these little tricks of the trade. I told one of those, I think a couple of weeks ago, when I said, Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. Now, of course, that should not be taken on face value. I say, Ajahn Brahm has to disappear first. Mm. Your sense of self has to go. If your sense of self is still there, there's still the idea of attainment, owning, doing stuff. So that's about as far as I can go. But then I also say, well, how long does it take to get these states? And what training do you need? Instead of making it personal, this is my other trick, is sometimes I say, I know this monk. I know this monk who used to get into jhana, even when he was still a student. Okay, now I'm not making a claim, okay? Please don't charge me with breaking my vinaya. I'm giving you a very strong clue. (laughs) But, And of course, you never know when that's going to happen. You just practice and practice and practice. And one day when, especially when you put aside your sense of self, You don't own anything. When you don't own anything, you don't crave for things. You don't want to own more. And you're not afraid when things disappear. When fear comes up in your meditation, it's always because something which you assumed you owned is now being taken away from you. So that's why in meditation when fear comes up, good sign. It means you're getting close to some of these attachments and ownership, which you're not really prepared to let go of yet. If you can practice like this as a young student, when you don't own that much, when you haven't committed to a relationship, I was pretty. Cl- this person I know who told me this, <laughs> yeah, okay, I can say that, <laughs> was pretty close to committing to a relationship. But after experiencing you know, even the first jhana, that's the end of relationships. I felt sorry. Oh my God. Stop personalizing Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> that sometimes it's a warning. These jhanas are far more pleasurable than anything else you've ever experienced in your whole life. And they also have a consequence to them. They come from letting go of things, not from attaching. So, that doesn't do well if you're committing to a, a close relationship to somebody else. Okay, I said it that Yeah?
2: Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Very interesting, yeah. Ajahn Brahm, you started today's sutta. With the summary of the seven factors of enlightenment, mm-hmm. you mentioned the, the highest one is we know it's equanimity, okay, mm-hmm. and then you started with the the four the four jhanas, mm-hmm. all right, stillness of mind, okay. Now. So this is the seventh, the equanimity, okay? okay, and the jhanas. Is this a continuation? This thing, or or, or a different thing, or what? Because for my observation, it's a continuation, say. In the jhanas, you talk about stillness. And now third, fourth, you bring in equanimity too.
0: No? That is real stillness. Equanimity, just looking on, uh, being content so there's no desire, aversion on anything at all. What happens if you have pure equanimity, 100% equanimity? You are still. Nothing to move you. So the highest level of equanimity is the fourth jhana.
2: Sorry, I thought the highest is the eighth jhana equanimity. Sorry, am, am I for my
0: understanding? The eighth jhana is the highest. No, no. Because no. th- once you have these four jhanas, this is still the f- f- uh, sixth sense of mind. It's so strong and pure. The strongest mindfulness. The object is equanimity. Peace, if you like, contentment, if you like, but not just ordinary peace. Incredible, perfect, deep, unmovable peace. So there are different levels
2: of equanimity, are you saying no. that?
0: And then, after a while, if you stay there long enough, things start to fall away, fade, disappear. The mind, even just in a, a fourth jhana state, you can stay in there for hours. Sometimes days, but eventually, because of stillness, things vanish. So
2: sorry. What is not... ma- I'll just finish
0: okay. first. Yeah. What's vanishing is the mind. Okay.
2: So, what is the equ- equanimity in the seven factors of enlightenment, the last equanimity? What is that equanimity compared to the, the fourth jhana equanimity you're saying? Are they the same thing or, or different? Or no, deeper this, equanimity?
0: Even the seven factors of enlightenment i just go back down. It says, I'll just bring it up here so you can see it. Uh, I oh, haven't got it here. They say that you develop these enlightenment factors uh, until they reach fulfilment. You just, where is it going? You observe such a still mind with equanimity and whatever occasion you observe the equanimity, the still mind, on that occasion the equanimity enlightenment factor is aroused in you and you develop it and by developing it, it comes to fulfilment in you. This is equanimity being fulfilled in its deepest sense in the fourth jhana.
2: Fourth jhana. How about the, the seven factors of enlightenment, the equanimity,
0: How how is this? Well, this is, it, this is where it says the seventh factor of the eight, sorry, the seventh factor of the seven enlightenment factors is equanimity. And the equanimity is developed in its highest, deepest sense. By developing it, it comes to fulfillment in you. That's referring to the jhanas. Oh, so it's a higher form then? Yeah, it the higher. Highest, best form.
2: Oh, you know what I'm saying? Asking this for yes. all of us, you know, it's very important. Can I just, uh, yes, algebra, go on. You know, just from my you know experience, thing. Okay, lately through all these suttas, okay, I felt I learned, came to me a thing, you know. Okay, the bojangas, Yeah. Bojangas is a healing thing for all of us, you know. Of the highest, highest. Um, uh, 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 it's the. Uh, fact it's an enlightenment factor, okay? Yeah. So after listening to this, I apply this to me, you know. Yeah. Whenever I have that problem, this thing, okay? So the bojangas is a healing thing. So I look at it. I apply the in my own way, the economy, tea, you know. Yeah. And it I mean you have to practice it. It it works for me, you know. The problems is all from my mind, all this coming up thing, you know. So I applied the economy, tea, this thing, and it helps a lot. Yeah. That my mind keeps exerting, all oh, you know, all the problems we have, all these things. Indeed. Just let go, and that's a healing factor. It's what the Bojangas is about, you know. Yes. Like uh, the Buddha Chund- was well, sick, Chunda recited he healed. He, he got healed. Exactly. So it's he recited and healed a lot of the monks down there. So it's a
0: healing thing for all of us. But when you actually take it to the level of the jhanas, mm. you don't have any problems because you've disappeared. Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the, the higher thing now, I think. The sense of The sense of ownership has mm. vanished. And that it means the equanimity becomes immovable. Mm. So all this, just, just one, right? So if you are
2: at, say for us, zero to nine, which level we are in, you know? So if we are at a higher level, we can understand this, you No, know. yes. A person just come in level one, they won't understand this. Uh, so it would take time. We, <laughs> Sorry?
0: Even if you don't understand it, I just recall so many times when Ajahn Chah, my teacher, was teaching. It was way above me, I didn't understand it at all, but I remembered it. Mm. And it's that remembering those pure teachings, that was what assisted me. Mm. So when you had experiences, ah, that's what he meant Mm. by the pure equanimity. Mm One thing which I do here, and I mention this—I mentioned this in some talks to you before—in many traditions, they refuse to explain jhanas to lay people. They just will not do that. Even in Vietnam, some years ago, they made a resolution with the United Buddhist Sangha, Mahayana and Theravada teachers not to teach jhanas they thought it was too troublesome but because i was not born in vietnam i was just grew up in uk you know where the westerners we have this idea of equity why not teach jhanas to lay people the buddha did so i reacted to that and so if you tell me not to i will Even once in a famous monastery in UK, I was just going into the reception area and one of the senior monks there grabbed me by the shoulder and pulled me aside and said, and he looked around as if I was, he was about to give me a copy of Playboy or something, doing something a bit irreverent. I said, what? He said, Ajahn Brahm, thank you for teaching jhanas. It wasn't allowed in many places, even teaching monks jhanas. And that really you know, made me teach even more eloquently the importance of jhanas. Why not? There are many lay people who do experience them. In the time of the Buddha they did. And if you don't teach them, you get these really silly occasions someone comes up to you and they said, I've had this really deep experience. Like this lady in Penang, many years ago, came up to me and said, I went to my GP, my psychologist, psychiatrist, no one understood what I was talking about. Am I going crazy? What was it? And I remember her telling me, she wasn't even a Buddhist at the time, but she thought, maybe I could understand. And then she taught me she told me what she'd experienced and it was a very true jhana, first jhana experience. It kind of surprised me. I confirmed that because I asked her, did this happen, did that happen, did that not happen? And afterwards she said, yes, yes. At last someone understands you know, what I was experiencing. And for her that was just so important. She realised she wasn't going crazy. She didn't have a psychotic episode. It was just a very deep state of um, mindfulness which she just fluked. And she actually I did ask Chao Po when I was in Penang recently, he said yes. And she's actually, that changed her life. And she comes to the Buddhist teachings now. Imagine you have these powerful experiences. You haven't got a clue what they are.
2: These are all important things, you know. We are, you okay. You tell us, you know. But there's a lot of deeper things we need to understand. To this, all the yeah. the real teaching, you know, maybe like the workshops which Ajam, brahmalik you know, like yeah. they, they, We should go in, into deeper things to understand. Because this is the heart of Buddha's teaching. Is yeah. helping us, you know, helping us. Indeed. Yes. The, the, the suffering, you know, be, you know yeah. how to get his his teachings. Suffering, they ask him. Be, you know, what's your teaching about suffering and end of suffering? That's the real thing. Yeah, the, Not it, all our, 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 our Buddhists, well, some Buddhists, vegetarian or rebirth, these are all sidelines. What you say, no, these are the heart of the
0: teaching. Indeed. It's the heart we should this all is, be
2: going to into this, you know.
0: This is why yeah. we teach it. Because once you hear this, it's a good chance uh, Brown, that I uh, will encourage you. Oh, sorry. Yes.
3: Neither perception or non-perception, is that the high equilibrium or no. higher the, emitting? No.
0: If you ask the Buddha, it's much deeper, but the Buddha said you cannot use that as uh, grounds for getting enlightened. It's way too refined. What happens to teaching about the Arupa states, First of all, the never, Buddha never mentioned those as jhanas. He never mentioned a fifth jhana, sixth jhana, seventh jhana or an eighth jhana. But nevertheless, those fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth what are sometimes called jhanas, they're really arupa states, that they are based on the fourth jhana. You can't just suddenly get into a fifth or a first arupa or a second arupa you have to go for the four jhanas first. It's like they are a special case, a refinement of the fourth jhana. What happens? Because the mind is let go completely of the five senses, you still have this sixth sense base left and in the fourth jhana, the highest state of mindfulness and equanimity, now that mindfulness starts to Fade away, like an onion, it peels off layer by layer. You now the first of the arupas, the state of, I- sometimes they call it infinite space, but that just makes it just a bit too like cosmic. It's much more like unbounded, or sp- the idea of space disappearing. This is something which you, know, you understood from maybe my science background, theoretical physics which was a bit sort of cosmic, <laughs> obviously cosmic, but had some really weird interpretations. The fact that you know the infinity and zero are just almost one and the same. This is actually where the concept of space is disappearing. A good example of that is present moment awareness. Whenever you get into just simple present moment awareness, you feel like time has no boundaries anymore. It's like infinite. But there's no time there at all. No, we've got other ones here. So that's a, a nice way of understanding what infinite space means. It's like space is disappearing. The whole of it, the idea of it. And the next thing was infinite consciousness, unbounded consciousness. That too is beginning to disappear. This is where even the idea of um, mind is vanishing. And then there is this state of nothingness which sounds very easy to understand, but it means there's nothing left. But then you can perceive nothingness. And the, so the next stage becomes neither perception nor non-perception. And what's happening here is even perception, the last part of the mind, is now fading away and disappearing. Looked out from one angle, you're perceiving, looked at from the other angle, you're not perceiving at all. The mind is about to stop and this is very profound stuff. The last thing which you think you have assumed you are, what I sometimes call the last citadel of the illusion of a self, that which knows, is disappearing. When that disappears, the Buddha called that the state of cessation, where all that is experienced and perceived vanishes, Sapasanya vediyeta niroda. And what this is doing is showing you that even every part of eddy, not just the world and the body, but even all your mind, the ability to know, to perceive. It's all disappearing. No, I'll, I'll just finish first of all. Because once things have disappeared, when you come out of that state, one is always, someone asks this question, and uh, it's quoted in the suttas, you're either fully enlightened or you're a non-returner. Non-returner is just you know, the one lower than the enlightenment. That's the only two alternatives. That's why there's incredibly deep states of meditation. And A lot of times people are even afraid of listening to it. What do you mean you disappear? Is that the whole point of this path? Disappearing? Yes. Vanishing. Gone. Out of samsara. And I'm saying that, Many people say, Ajahn Brahm, he's been a monk for so many years, and that's, he doesn't know anything yet, but I'll say that because it's true, and one day it will happen to you. you vanish. Okay okay, uh, one minute, okay. and then we do it on this. Do okay. you want you have a question, please? Yeah. You say is yeah, yeah. Oh sorry, gentlemen.
2: In, important, yeah. Like in space, floating, okay. That is when we are the mind is so light, you know. But no. we, we are so light, then we like uh, you know we are light, n- no problem. All these things, then we float out the thing, you know. No. Opposite of that is, you know, our mind because our human mind, we are so bound to the earth, you know. We are so attached to the problem we have. When some little thing happens, you think, oh, we 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 we, we keep like uh how how do you say like a Keep going, you know, you know, you know, you know, like uh, attached to the problem, make it big all day. So well we suffer? No, it's isn't it's it? So when we, we we slowly become become lighter in you know, equanimity, become lighter all these things. Then we, I, I mean, is being stuck to to, to to earth this thing, okay? The, the thing become lighter, then we 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 float out this thing, you know. Then we become light, and that's how the whole thing is.
0: No, no, it's much deeper than that. Uh, yeah, I know that. The earthquake is thing jump, For us, well. just
2: human beings, if we can go, don't go for the deeper states, no. you know. And so, and so we can know the basic thing to help us through in the problem. That's good enough. And then we progress. That, that depends on many, some people for many lifetimes or whatever.
0: Yeah. So I am trying to focus on the word of the Buddha. And the word of the Buddha is having these problems disappear totally right now, not slowly. Okay, here we go. Okay, number one question. What does one know after jhana that rebirth would eventually end? Wow. Do you know if it's dream entry or renewing from past life? What you know after a jhana, first of all, your five hindrances are gone for a long time. Uh, The deeper the jhana, the longer those five hindrances have gone. One of the things which are gone is no more wanting, no more ill will, which is one of the reasons why I check people if they claim they've attained a jhana. You know this before, I say, you, a white woman, white women can't get (laughs) jhanas. And I look at you (laughs) and see if you're really offended. And if you get very really angry, you know, say okay, that wasn't a jhana, okay. <laughs> of course white women can get jhanas, it doesn't really matter, but you try and upset a person because you've still got that propensity or uh, ability to get upset that wasn't a jhana. <laughs> That's how you check people out. So what one knows after jhana, that rebirth would eventually end, yes you can know that, But first of all, you notice what rebirth actually is. What happens in a jhana, your five senses have stopped, I mean really stopped, they're just not there. When they come back again when you emerge from jhana, that's like what happens when getting out of jhana, but in there you've got the data, what it's like, you know, when you're free of this body, totally. Number one, it means you're never afraid of death anymore because that's, you know, what's actually going to happen, Okay, dying is painful, but once you get past that point and you're dead, oh, free at last. What happens when you die? You go towards the light. What is that light? That's the nimitta. That's how you recognise your own mind, that's what it looks like. And if you have enough practice and training or understanding, then you just allow yourself to merge into that light. That's like getting into a jhana, bliss out. Do you know if it's dream-winter, entry or renewing from past life? I'm not quite sure, that was not really put very well, but after a jhana that's not necessarily even stream winning. But I say, and many other people say this with me, to have the real fruit of stream winning, you do need jhanas. I can't see how anybody can be a stream winner, not just on the way to being a stream winner, but really achieve stream winning without having experienced the jhana. You can just infer, suppose, but when you've actually been there and know what the jhana is like, then you have a kind of understanding of just what death is, what is the outside of the five um, senses. And that's one of the things that I mentioned, this, I think, somewhere recently. When the Buddha described these jhanas, and I haven't come to this yet, but you'll find that the Buddha described the f- even the first jhana, the bliss which you feel of that first jhana. He called it Parviveka which is the bliss of renunciation. The next description was Sambodhisukha. And when I read that, it must be a misprint because Sambodhi means enlightenment, enlightenment happiness. That gives you a taste of what enlightenment is. It's not enlightenment but you get the flavour of it, the taste of it. That joy which you feel even in first jhana, Sambodhisukha, if you want to know what enlightenment feels like, truly how the Buddha described it, get into a first jhana, stay there for a while, when you come out afterwards, that's what enlightenment feels like, it's powerful. Second, what gets you out of a jhana? When you get too scared, if wood is gone, no, scare fear only stops you getting in. Once you are inside a jhana, there's no fear there, the only reason why you come out of a vagina, there's two reasons and one of them is a very important one for you to remember. If you need to pick up your children from school at 3pm or something, please tell yourself when you sit down after lunch at 1pm, you know, I must come out by 3pm, I must come out by 3pm, I must come out by 3pm and then you can come out. It's amazing to do that, That you you haven't got a clue about what time is, the mind is really still and enjoying itself immensely and then the mind comes out and it's 3pm. Make sure you say pm, if you just say by 3, you might come out at (laughs) 3am, because the time has no meaning for you anymore in there. You're getting scared is only an obstacle for getting into jhanas. You never have any fear when you come out for a long period of time. Even my dear old preceptor, I was not ordained by Ajahn Chah. My preceptor was a Samadha Buddha Jhan in Watsakhet. It was weird, I, just, I asked him, why didn't you send me straight to Ajahn Chah? And the people who I took advice from at that time said, oh, We never thought you were serious becoming a monk. You were too happy. <laughs> that's what they said. I was always smiling. I was meditating already. But they said, I don't think you'd last because they thought only miserable people would go to monasteries to become monks. Honestly, that's what they said. So, anyway. Uh, Eventually, you just uh, find really good preceptors. And my preceptor once told me a personal story, I don't mind repeating it. He said, even though he was a great scholar, and he became the acting Sangharaja of Thailand. It's only politics which stopped that being confirmed as a real Sangharaja. But uh, he said once, he came from Gottsamoy and that uh, when he was a young monk, of course he had to learn meditation, and I asked him to meditate in a coconut grove. And he got into a really nice deep meditation, into a jhana. And he knew it was a jhana because when he came out of that meditation, he saw in his lap was a very venomous snake coiled up in his lap. And he said he was taught by his parents, his teachers, if that gives you a bite, you're dead. And he said, even though he recognized that snake as really dangerous and it was cold up in his lap, he had no fear at all. He wasn't suppressing the fear I must sit still, I must sit still. There was no fear at all. And he just carried on being peaceful, it was nice. And after about 20 minutes or something, the snake decided it's time to leave and just very gently and quietly uh, to slid away. That's actually what these jhanas are like, afterwards. You're fearless, not because you're strong. You look at these beings, they're just other beings in this universe. You're not playing around with kindness, it's natural to you. So what actually gets you out of a jhana is just the karma, you Know how, how much, how how much letting go you are practicing to get into that jhana, the more letting go you have, it's like the more momentum you have, the longer you stay in that jhana and usually the deeper you go into those jhanas. If you say, yeah I got into first jhana today, today I'm going to get into second jhana, that's stupid. You just say to yourself, I'm going to really let go, really let go, really let go. And you feel really peaceful, you don't do anything and then you can go into very deep jhanas and stay there for a long period of time. It's the amount of renunciation which you do, basically. Okay, next question. (laughs) Can you clarify the simile of the check in the mail and drop by drop? Why jhana is unexpected, whereas in the sutta it says one decides, shouldn't it be gradual? you decide to let go of things, all you can ever do is to create the situation, the causes where the jhanas happen and to make sure you avoid those things which will stop the jhanas from happening. And what stops the jhanas from happening is wanting, fear, pride, all those negative emotions, which you know everybody knows you know, are not supposed to be part of a person practicing, if you have those sorts of things there, I want, I want, I want, then it will never happen. That's one of the reasons why many times people, I want, I want, I want, and they get nowhere. they just give up. And when they give up, oh, this is impossible, I can't do this then the jhanas can happen. All these lovely similes. This is a simile which I invented of the donkey and the carrot simile. You all know this one, I hope, by now. If you don't, you weren't paying attention last time. (laughs) How does a donkey catch a carrot? Because that carrot is tied to a string and the string is tied to a stick and the stick is tied to the donkey's neck so that carrot is just about two foot in front of the donkey's mouth. And even though the donkey chases after that carrot, that's how the farmer makes him pull the cart behind it, even though the donkey chases after it, it's always about two foot in front of the donkey's mouth. So how does actually the donkey catch the carrot? So simple, it runs as hard as it could, You all know know how to do that, chasing after carrots in life. But then the donkey knows how to stop and is not afraid. Because as soon as you stop, that carrot, the momentum of the carrot makes it swing further away from you than you've ever experienced in your life. Four foot in front of the donkey's mouth. He's losing the carrot. But does the donkey get afraid? The donkey is patient, just waits. And as the donkey waits, the carrot starts moving towards the donkey. It you just you know when things swing up, they swing back again. And soon it's two foot in front of the donkey's mouth and then the donkey just doesn't do anything. Because now the donkey is coming at full speed, the fastest it's ever moved towards the donkey, towards its mouth and soon it gets right next to the donkey's teeth. You've seen pictures of donkeys, they've got huge teeth. And right at the very last moment, the donkey remembers the importance of compassion. He looks at that carrot and says, carrot, the door to my mouth is open to you. (laughs) Opens its mouth and that's how the carrot comes in. That's how jhanas happen as well. You've been running after them. That's actually quite good. Now stop. When you stop, you feel your meditation is going backwards. You feel like the check is not in the mail at all. Ajahn Brahma is making these things up. And it goes so far away, further than it's been before, but then you find it starts coming towards you. You don't do anything, remain still. And soon it's coming so fast, so fast, and it's scary. That's why you need the kindness. Open the door of your heart to this wonderful cow which is coming into you. You didn't do it. You were just patient, you let go, and let go with kindness. That's why the experience of jhana is unexpected because if you want it, it doesn't happen. When you don't want it, you just make the causes right there, then it happens. When entering jhana, is it common to feel like we're in the state of emptiness, sunyata? Here bliss is experienced as vacuity since the stillness dissolves thoughts and feelings. No, that's not how I would describe it. The emptiness is empty of what? That's why I was impressed when I read the Sunyata Sutta by the Buddha the first time. He always made emptiness uh, conditional. Empty of what? Empty of the past, empty of the future, empty of worry. so when you are entering a jhana, it's actually not when you're entering a jhana, the bliss is the strongest feeling at that point. It's powerful, it's out of control, your sense of self is disappearing fast. Vacuity, not really emptiness, but you can't have a first jhana without the power of the bliss. And it's incredibly strong, piti and sukha. The stillness dissolves thoughts and feelings. It dissolves thoughts, yes, but not Vedana, not feelings. Those feelings are like purified, the most powerful purified bliss you've ever had in your life. That's why it also serves, as I said earlier, to dissolve any thoughts of like lust or sensory pleasure, any thoughts of, any feelings of anger, those things just can't exist. Have you ever wondered, why are monks and nuns celibate? Are we doing this just to torture ourselves, to give ourselves a hard time? Is it because we're on the shelf, we can never find a girlfriend, never find a partner, so I become a monk? (laughs) Of course not. You become a monk and stay as a monk or as a nun because you have this beautiful sense of A much more powerful Mm -hmm. sense of joy and happiness. And this is what the jhanas give you. Anyway, that's the fourth question here. I don't know. Okay, yeah, please. Yeah, Cheng, I've got a question here. Yeah, but you know, sometimes with these things over here, I sometimes. People say, "Why are you only doing one paragraph or one bit a day?" Because I've gone really slowly in the last times I've taught this class. But that's wonderful because you know you're really important. Yes, um,
1: Just it's really a curiosity question. If if we talk about arahant, that is the Tevijah arahant. Yeah. And if the first uh, Tevija or doesn't matter the second. This, they, they know the path life, uh, I mean the path of life, uh, you quite, I think what, you, you, you understand the path of life, uh, anyway yes. you understand past life. Yes. My curiosity is this, that don't you think that it will happen only, uh, a person, if somebody claims that they have attainment of uh, a rupa before they can do that, or even if let's say you are arahan, or, or even somebody got past life knowledge, the Tevija of the knowledge, yes. It has to happen before you can do a rupa attainment.
0: That's a very good supposition. And I would probably tend to agree with you. You know, I always think, you you think very deeply, you see very deeply. So I really admire some of your propositions like that. I'd probably say yes.
1: And if we set the case, I am definitely limited by my language ability, which is good, it's freedom for me, so I'm just playing with words. I see people are struggling with A Rupa, the first A Rupa, the, 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 because for so yeah. many years I don't read, Infinite the fading away of the con- perception um, of form, yeah. and some would talk about form, forms, it doesn't matter what, if you based on what I say, it has to be form of everything, it's the kanda yeah. of the form is gone, the past, the future, oh, okay, the future Good. is still there if you, if you still got rebirth, it's definitely forms, it doesn't no. matter form or form, like I said my English is not there, yeah. but it's basically, we are talking about a rupa, a, a species of being, if you are reborn there. Yeah. And to do like that, you go back to what I say, you have to have past life experience, in the knowledge that uh, uh, the Buddha, or our framework of teaching we want, yes. the graduate training or the, vis- uh, the, the virtue, the stillness, yeah. the wisdom.
0: Yes, okay. because that's what happens to people who develop these jhanas. That sometimes it's like, it's easy to remember past lives, it's just there for you. So it's just whether a person decides, yeah, let's have a look.
1: So in this case, look, I just finished this curiosity. If we, are teach, if we are a disciple of Ajahn Brahm, or if you are a th- studying or want to read Buddhism through Ajahn Brahm, we just have to stop thinking of Arupa as A Rupa Jhana, because it's just wasting
0: a lot of your time. Could be, yes. You know sometimes though it's nice to have the big picture, the overview and that's what I sometimes like to do. It may happen one day that you get into these really deep jhanas and then once you're inside of a jhana, there's no way of deciding to go deeper, to stay where you are, come out. It just happens according to uh, natural laws, not your will or your choice unless you make that choice beforehand. Within the jhanas you cannot will or choose anything. That part of your mind has disappeared. And it's because of that, you know, you can't decide within a jhana what you're going to do next. Which is, that's one of the reasons why you come out naturally. And so you can't decide, I will get into the arupas. And it means also, the Buddha said, there are two types of enlightenment for those people who've just gone through the four jhanas and those who've taken it further to the arupas. The arupas are not necessary, but sometimes it happens anyway. It's so not things you decide. Yeah, I'm going to go and do the arupas. I'm going to just do the four jhanas. If you think like that, you're missing the whole point.
1: Can, can I just jump into your curiosity with this last statement. So I have this curiosity also. If you, people are always talking about uh, my English, I I just have to do it correctly. Uh, Master of, uh, they're comparing, it's just a more of comparing. Uh, Somebody, some meditator who can meditate and attain uh, a rupa is uh, a, uh, 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 a uh, better master than uh, arahan that is have four Jana. I think it's rubbish. I agree. Okay. Then I don't have to tell you why because there's a lot of scholars that argue with that. I felt is doesn't make <laughs> sense at all because four Jana of Sara, Sar, Sariputta and if you worship the wisdom of Sariputta and you harbor that about mastery or com- commentary saying the mastery of Arupa is Better person. I, I don't know what they use. I think it's so. It's just out of it, incoherent to what I think. I
0: totally agree with you there. I always remember that description of people who are fully enlightened. How they described that to the Buddha. They said that one who is fully enlightened never feels they're better than anybody else, never feels they're worse than anybody else, never thinks they're the same as anybody else that comparison has totally been abandoned. There's no self there to compare. So that's true, you never feel that one person's better or worse than anybody else. And that's a good sign that a person's understood what the Buddha called conceit. Conceit is not just thinking you're better. Sometimes conceit is thinking you're worse. Or thinking you are different, you give up all comparisons, all judgments. That's a sign of a fully enlightened being.
1: Can I finish off with last uh, comment?
0: Has to be last because there's another question coming. Um,
1: like just earlier on, when you when you give the answer to the live chat, where you talk about uh, how the person. Uh, how the how a person who experienced jhana and and the jhana, and you say there's two factor. One is uh, the determination before they get go, and then one is karma. I I just think that if let's say a lot of your bhikkhu, a lot of your sangha people and a lot of your good, good disciples, if they follow what you say early on, just let go, let go, let go. From first jhana they go let go, let go until. Fourth jhana, there'll be a lot, a lot of good things happen in a lot of monasteries eh? Especially if they after finish their two weeks of doing their <laughs> uh, party mocha, they are so virtual mind, and then they got good teacher, and they learn so much, and they already got first jhana, and then remember to say, let go, let go. So they happen. <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs> thank you. A Question over here? Please, yes. No, oh, the, the thing is coming. the suttas,
3: uh, I, uh, the Buddha extends his life by signless concentration. What does that mean, signless
0: concentration? Is it the nothingness? Okay, the signless concentration, it's not a concentration, it's a stillness. It's the animata samadhi. That means it's similar to not comparing anything, not sort of seeing Uh, anything which makes you feel that this is better than that. When, how do we compare anything? We look for signs. And we've been brainwashed basically by our culture and believe this is a better sign than that. This is a more educated person than that person. This is a wiser person than the other person, a kinder person. All those signs vanish. Now imagine when you just cannot compare, you don't have any signs left. You can't even see like a second jhana better than the first jhana. It means you have no desires possible. To have a desire, you have to have a comparison. Here I am, this is what I want. When you cannot compare, all that wanting vanishes. And that creates a sense of stillness. And peace. You don't want stillness, you don't want anything. But when you don't want anything that's just what happens. It's cause and effect, it's nature. When the wind doesn't blow, the leaves on the bushes and the trees become still eventually. So that when one doesn't look for signs, just one cannot go anywhere. One has to be still. So. They said he wouldn't, no, he wouldn't extend his life by that method. The, this is one of the other things I love saying, that when uh, people ask about the Buddha extending the life, the Buddha made a promise and that promise was made to Mara, right after the Buddha became enlightened. I think it was still in the uh, Bodh Gaya. Mara came to him and said, "Okay, I give up. I admit you're fully enlightened. You're beyond my control now. But please, oh Buddha, please just no need to teach people. Teaching people is a big burden. And instead, you no, know, please just." Quietly go off into parinirvana. That was Mara's suggestion. And the Buddha replied, No, I will not enter parinirvana until I have completed four tasks. It's actually his mission in life, and that was to create a strong sangha of monks. Many fully enlightened, many non-returners, many once-returners, many stream winners, and people on the path to being stream winners. Until I've also created a strong bhikkhuni sangha, nuns, fully ordained bhikkhunis, enlightened on the path to enlightenment, uh, once-returners, non-returners, and winners. Uh, until I've created a strong community of laymen and laywomen on the path to enlightenment. Once those four groups are formed, are strong and uh, sustainable, then I will enter full enlightenment. And that's when Mara came to see the Buddha under the Chapala shrine in Wisali and said to him, He was old at this time. And he said to the Buddha, Remember that promise? Of course. Now there's a strong Sangha of female enlightened beings, a strong Sangha of male monks enlightened, strong lay supporters, laymen stream winners and once-returners, non-returners, strong uh, group of lay women supporters uh, you know, on the path of enlightenment, once-returners, uh, non-returners, stream winners. Your promise has been fulfilled. So the Buddha said, now is the time to actually to take, full enlight- to take the full enlightenment, the Paranibbana. And that is when the Buddha said, yes I remember that promise, I have to keep it. In three months time I will enter full parinibbana." That's the other part of the story which people forget. The reason why the Buddha taught and worked so hard for so many years, he had this goal of actually making Buddhism strong and sustainable by these four groups. And once he had achieved that goal, Amara reminded him, yes, I've done my, my job. He could theoretically extend his life, but there'd be no point to that. He was just saying it's possible to do that as a Buddha, for no need. He was right. Buddhism has lasted for the last 25-26 centuries, and it's grown, it's gone to all parts of the world. I think there is some weakness in it and one of those weaknesses, honestly, was the fact we did not have a strong bhikkhuni s- sangha. I think Dr Kesri Kais- Dhammananda once said the Buddhism for so many years was like Uh, A stool with three legs is never as stable as a stool or a chair with four legs. He said, it's wonderful that now we're seeing that fourth leg being put back rightly on the chair which is Buddhism. That was the main reason why the Buddha kept alive for so many years to teach. Okay, I have to make the very, very last question. I usually have three very, very, very last questions. <laughs> Go on. Uh,
3: it's quite convincing that uh, the uh, jhanas are almost essential for enlightenment because most of the sutras I see that it's ending with the four jhanas. But there are still a lot of teachers who te- um, put, put jhanas a bit more lightly saying that um, even uh, the Bodhisattva's teachers uh, attained jhanas and uh, and that's, <laughs> so what yes, can you say indeed. about that? Even uh, um, Raghminas Sita had jhanas before?
0: Maybe in a previous lifetime, but certainly not in this life. If you look at some of the evidence that when the Buddha remembered being under the rose apple tree, that was his only other remembrance of what a jhana was like in this life. He couldn't have experienced those jhanas under those two first teachers who taught Alara Kalama and Uttaka Ramaputta. When he realized the importance of the middle way, not to do things which tire the body, and not to indulge in sensory pleasures, but to realize that the joy of the mind is exempt from that, uh, not indulging in sensory pleasures. That was why his first teaching was describing those two things you should avoid. atta Gilamatanu yoga. That means practices which tire and exhaust, you know, your body and mind. Too much thinking. Too much striving. Too much fasting. Not getting enough sleep. Things like that, which the Buddha and many other people practiced. In the other one was Karma Sukhaluka, Karma Sukali kanu Yoga, Karma Sukha means the joy, the pleasures of the five senses. That word karma, K long A M A, when you read and study Pali, you find that that always means the five senses, nothing to do with the sixth sense, the mind. Many people don't understand what that mind really is. When you understand what it really is, it's naturally very beautiful and joyful. Once you get into the joyful states of mind, don't be afraid of them. Many people didn't understand that. They thought that you had to abandon all happiness and pleasure in order to gain enlightenment. And that is wrong. So this, when one sees this, even the Buddha's first five disciples, they didn't understand what the Buddha was up to. He was giving away asceticism. That's why he taught them, the first thing he taught them, avoid asceticism. Don't uh, venerate asceticism. That's not the path. The path is the middle way between asceticism and the indulgence in the five body senses. They never understood that. If they had experienced jhana, they would, would have understood that straight away but they hadn't, so they abandoned him. He practiced alone for a while until when he did feel that this was the right way. That was actually quite revolutionary, to find a path which did not involve hurting the body. The asceticism was seen as not helpful at all.
3: So the two teachers, Araharama and Uddaraka Ramaputta, they, they, it was a different type of attainment a rupa, they had. Yeah.
0: Indeed, because as you said today, there are some people who teach and they want it to be jhana so much they lower the standards. When I was a young monk, I went to. Um, The United States, and I was invited. I said, "Oh, Ajahn Brahm, can you please come to see us? And these were two very famous Vipassana, Western teachers, the two most famous probably, Westerners, I won't say their names. And they asked me, said, about jhana. I said, what do you want me to, what do you want to discuss? I said, we want to sort of basically uh, pick your brain about what jhanas are, because their teacher had told them that their vipassana practice was not leading anywhere, they now needed to do jhanas. And they picked my brain for this because they knew I taught this. And what they were saying, they would invented a new type of jhana, they called jhana light. This was United States, it wasn't the real jhanas. So they had manufactured something much less, but nevertheless, they still called them jhanas. And that was kind of worrying, but they did answer the question about what was Alara Kalama Uttaka Ramaputta up to. What they were doing may have been remnants of past teachers, but were much less. Just like these days, if you go to university, you get a bachelor's degree. The requirements for a bachelor's degree are far less than a hundred years ago. A PhD, I don't know if any of you ever read Goethe's Dr. Faustus. Dr. Faustus was brilliant. He was awarded a PhD and it was a big celebration for him because they only awarded a PhD maybe once every five or six years. This was really special. How many PhDs does UWA give out every year? In those days, the the standard of a PhD was way, way higher than these days. Like jhanas, we always tend to downgrade their value or what's necessary to call them a jhana. I see that happening even now today. Many people feel they've got a jhana. It's not. So you know what happens? They don't come and ask me. (laughs) They ask someone else. (laughs) Please, 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 please say it's a jhana. Okay, I think I better finish off now because it's gone 4.30. Is that okay? Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. In two weeks' time I will be in Hong Kong. So Ajahn Bhamari, I imagine, or someone else will be giving the sutta class. But when I come back here on the second or fourth weekend, Sunday, I will carry on. It just takes so much time, but I don't mind because you're engaged and that's wonderful. So now we do the Arahang Sammasan Buddha. Akipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sanganaman.